It's Friday the 29th of November and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, can good design help combat the effects of climate change? We'll speak to the CEO of the Landscape Institute, Dan Cook. Many of our winning schemes this year really tackle that issue of how to enhance biodiversity and also how do we mitigate and adapt to a changing climate. Plus, Andrew Muller wraps up what we've learned after another week of news headlines. And Robert Bound pays tribute to the great Clive James. I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. The growing urgency surrounding climate change has prompted many industries to consider how they might play a bigger role in helping prevent environmental catastrophe. The Landscape Institute is doing its part by recognising those who've been working hard to manage our natural surroundings thoughtfully. The winners of this year's Landscape Institute Awards have just been announced. Monocle's Nick Moniz spoke to the Institute's CEO, Dan Cook. The awards run right across the spectrum of landscape architecture. You know, you've got design, planning, management and, and the science of landscape. Is there anything particularly cutting edge that we should be looking out for with this year's finalists and winners? Many of our winning schemes this year really tackle that issue of how to enhance biodiversity, how to enhance um, environments, bring them back to life, and also um, how do we mitigate and adapt to a changing climate. So there's, there's many great examples right across um, the award winners of, of these, these areas. But also the other trend that, that, that's there is some really strength among many of the winners who've really empowered communities, engaged communities, and really focused on, in many instances, co-designing bottom-up solutions. So I think that's something you're seeing more and more from the landscape profession, is this kind of commitment to genuine engagement with a sense of place, people's culture, and their day-to-day lives. And are we seeing these sorts of moves reflected in the awards? The winner of the President's Award went to Anthony McGuigan and Darren McKinstry of the Paul Hogarth Company um, after they'd won the Communications and Presentation category for for um, what's growing on the Greenway. Um, It's amazing um, restoration of a site in the Conswater Greenway. Um, It's a linear path stretching nine kilometres with the knock and loop rivers in East Belfast. And they've really engaged and co-designed this space with the local community and really are seeking much greater awareness of the natural environment in East Belfast and, as a consequence, helping to improve activity levels and the health and well-being of society as a result. So what was it in particular about their community engagement strategy that the jury liked? The, the winning aspect is the fact that this, this um, landscape practice for Paul Hogarth Company actually developed a, a blog that called What's Growing on the Greenway. And they modeled a bit on a similar blog that operated for the High Line in New York and that many people would know of around the world. Um, and what they did was you know, focus on the, the horticulture and, and uh, ecology of the site um, introducing species and plant species in particular to you know new audiences to educate them around what's growing on the greenway. It wasn't just the design being done to people; it was a design being done with and for the people that were seeking to serve. And you know, nothing better to epitomise you know our, our commitment to benefiting people, place, and nature as an organisation in our 90th year. It's a it's a fantastic and worthy winner um, from our awards yesterday. 
It's Friday, and so time for another look back at what we've learned from a week of news headlines. Here's our contributing editor, Andrew Muller. We learned this week that there is probably a future election already in the bag for any UK party which bans all politicians from dabbling in anything approximating youth culture. Senior Conservative Michael Gove attempted to pick an online row, or as Gove would doubtless term it, beef, with the rapper and non-conservative Stormzy. Gove delighted Twitter with an excruciating appropriation of hip-hop slang, which translates mercifully badly to radio, so instead here's Gove endearing himself to high school students a couple of years back by performing probably the only song in the history of popular music, Whiter Than He Is. Hey everybody, take a look at me, I've got street credibility. I may not have a job, but I have a good time with the boys I meet down on the line. We also learned, moving seamlessly along on the subject of woeful misapprehension of popular culture by Conservative politicians, that 2020's Eurovision Song Contest will be down one contestant. Hungary has withdrawn from the warble-off, and while no official explanation has been offered, it is widely supposed that Hungary's Dua nationalist government has certain difficulties with aspects of the spectacle. One pro-government Hungarian commentator has damned Eurovision as a homosexual flotilla. It would be pleasant to think that certain victory awaits any entrant who competes in next year's contest under exactly that name. In the meantime, we are compelled to wonder how Eurovision will struggle along without material of this calibre. Last year's Hungarian entrant, Josi Papai, who belly flopped in the semi-final. We learned of fears of a global shortage of halloumi cheese, prompted by a growing Chinese appetite for the salty, squeaky sheep and or goat and or cow milk-based comestible. Though Cypriot farmers are wringing their ruminants dry, they fear that they may be unable to keep up with demand. Disappointingly for these conspiracy theory-addled times, nobody yet appears to be blaming this on the furtive machinations of a secret society known as the Illuminati. Don't write in. You can't do news items about cheese without a pun. It's the law. In Sweden, we learned that there is no daunting the burghers of the port of Jevla, who have once again erected an immense straw goat, despite the long-cherished tradition by which some ne'er-do-well burns the thing down at the earliest available opportunity. The 2019 goat, untorched as we go to air, represents a potential hat-trick. The last two have survived the festive season intact. We can only hope for a return to the glory years of 2005, when the goat was struck by a flaming arrow fired by someone dressed as a gingerbread man, or 1978, when it was kicked to bits by vandals who'd presumably forgotten their matches. We learned, indeed, that Sweden may be inclining to push its luck where dominance of festive tradition is concerned. A pilot project in Björkliden, in Sweden's far north, has staked a claim on Santa's birthplace to rival the Finnish hegemon. Here's Monocle 24's very arguably biased Santa Claus origin myths desk chief, Marcus Hippie. 
It just happens to be a commonly accepted fact that Santa is from Finland. I mean, have you ever heard anyone think that Santa would actually be an abolitioning, herring-eating, middle-aged man paying ridiculous taxes? And also Finland's done an amazing job in creating Santa Claus Village in Rovaniemi, what it is today. I mean, 600,000 visitors annually. Fair enough, if Sweden still wins over a slice of Santa tourism, at least us Finns, we still have Moomins and Tom of Finland. Elsewhere, we learned in what is hopefully not an unhappy economic portent that possession of a literal license to print money is no longer any guarantee of prosperity. Delarue, which makes the UK's banknotes, announced that it was at risk of collapse, not least to the most ironic business setback of our age, its loss of the post-Brexit British passport printing contract to a Franco-Dutch company. And we learned of the triumph of a bunch of long-suffering villagers in Kato State in the north of Nigeria. Their town had been known for decades as Ungawa Wawaye, which translates from the local Hausa language as Area of Idiots. The name apparently pertained not to any obvious deficiencies of the locals, but to the town's location alongside a waterway known, for reasons opaque, as Idiotic River. The emir of the vicinity has decreed a change of name to Yalwa Kadana, which reads as the much more encouraging area of plenty. There might well be more mirth to be had from the fact that Area of Idiots persisted with the name as long as it did, but it would seem unseemly when broadcasting from a country currently holding an election which seems on course to earn it that very title. And with that clangingly obvious gear grinding back to where we came in device, for Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, our senior editor Robert Bound considers the life and legacy of the great Clive James. To reach a pinnacle, most of us specialise, or believe that we should. We're a critic or a poet, we're an essayist or a lyricist, a memoirist or a translator. Maybe we even get to be on TV and become an entertainer. To be all of these, though, and loved and admired for them all, was the outlandish trick pulled off by Clive James, who died aged 80 earlier this week. Importantly, James was the kind of person whom, if you called him a Renaissance man to his face, wouldn't steeple his fingers and nod in acknowledgement, but make a joke a laconic joke about being sure to wear a ruff next time he discussed Dallas on TV. Wearing his learning lightly and lampooning it affectionately and precisely was one of James's most charming and almost tricksy traits. Later I'd know his reputation as a great man of letters, a linchpin of literary London and a legend in his own lunchtime who jostled with Kingsley and Martin Amis and Christopher Hitchens, but also a man who stood apart from all that stuff. Before I knew that, though, in unlikely mid-career bloom, James became a TV personality. Watching James on British TV in the 1980s and 90s, talking about the medium on which he'd recently become a star, you could tell there was something unusually bright burning behind the squint and the laconic Australian drawl. The way James cast himself on the box lent matters an ironic, sideline fancying air, and his collected TV reviews from the Observer newspaper titled The Crystal Bucket summed up his attitude towards TV's beauty and banality in one go. Clive James's death was announced on the same day as that of another great polymath, Jonathan Miller. In The Crystal Bucket, James wrote that Miller was justifiably outraged by the narrowness of modern specialisation and that he believed all intellectual adventures are the same adventures. 
before adding as ending, but there is also such a thing as being a prisoner of your own versatility. If James had a mirror to hand that day, it would have blushed and squinted. A toast, then, to a Renaissance man who said he wasn't. For Monocle, I'm Robert Bound. That's all in today's programme. Read and subscribe to our daily email bulletin at our website, monocle.com. Now, we're live on Monocle 24 in Zurich all weekend at our Christmas market. If you're in Zurich, do pop on down and join us at our bureau on Dufostrasse. Our editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule, will be there alongside his esteemed co-host, Georgina Godwin. So, even if you can't get there in person, be sure to tune in. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Monday. Enjoy your weekend. Listener.